This week on the show, we cover the history of FreeBSD, the BSDI and USL lawsuits in particular, a building website on Google Compute Engine using FreeBSD, a firewall band sharing across machines, OpenVPM as a default gateway on OpenBSD, sorting out the single Unix specification and what that is, and switching from Apple to a ThinkPad for development on OpenBSD, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 377, Firewall Band Sharing, recorded for the 11th of November 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hello, we're your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And Alan Jude. Welcome, everyone, especially those people who had their birthday in the last 12 months. Um, we have great headlines for you this week, as always. Uh, well, that joke didn't really not fire. Um, <laughs> History of FreeBSD, part two, BSDI and USL lawsuits uh, is what we have over at clarasystems.com. Yeah, so this is the second in our History of BSD series that we've been working on. And it comes basically as 386 BSD is starting to take off, as BSD starts to get commercialized, and we start to get, you know, BSD slash 386 and actually selling BSD as an operating system. And then, you know, the AT&T part of the story, and then, you know, how the lawsuit went, and then what happened in the aftermath, and how it all went. Uh, there's a bunch of links throughout the story to get more detail if you're interested in any one particular part. There's, you know, great stuff like old magazine articles from 1993, or even just information on the different parts of the, the background story behind all of this. And it's very interesting. Or even, you know, the fact that a, a couple of years ago, the uh, the University of California's version of the uh, settlement agreement became public because of the California public record laws. So if you've ever wanted to read through the that side of the, the lawsuit, you can actually see the original papers and everything. The legalese, yeah, all the fine-grained details, <laughs> the gory details. Yeah, the giant <laughs> list of file names. <laughs> Ooh, great. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, part of the suit was the uh, dispute about which file belonged to whom and which kind of changes were original and copied or yeah. whatever. Uh, but this also talks a lot about much of an impact this had on, on what would become open source, even just, you know, the, the famous quotes from Linus Torvalds, who's like, if, if BSD, 386 BSD had been around when he was trying to do stuff and hadn't had this cloud over it, uh, he probably wouldn't have created Linux. Yeah, story, uh, history would have been different in, in one way or the yeah. other. So what I found interesting is that there's one name uh, that is new to me from the original uh, CSRG. So uh, we have Keith Bostick, Kirk McCusick, Mike Carrolls, Bill Jolitz, and Don Seeley. And that is a new name for me. Uh, I think Don Seeley was the UUNet guy, wasn't he? Could be, yeah. Yeah, I think that's... In the story somewhere, because hmm. um, the all, all the other names make make uh, some kind of sense. I heard them before, um, but this is I think, new. yeah, a good chunk of these people I've actually even met. Well, yeah, I guess not all, not many of them, but I've I've met some of them, and the other ones I've at least seen emails from them and so on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, yeah, so for all the people who want to know about this, read the article. And this is part two, and I think part one is also available. Uh, yeah, from the beginning at the top, there's history of FreeBSD. And if you want to get the latest updates, then you should subscribe at the bottom for the article series. And each time one is coming out, you will get an email notifying you. Okay, then we have building an entire website on Google Compute Engine or GCE uh, over at cromwell-intel.com. So the goal here is, uh, here's how I deploy the website to the Google, Complute, Google Cloud Platform, of course, not Complute Platform. Um, <laughs> I used FreeBSD for good performance, stability, and minimal complexity. I set up HTTPS with free Let's Encrypt TLS certificates for both RSA and ECC. Then I adjusted the Apache configuration for good score from the authoritative Qualys server analysis. And my site cromwell-intel.com, I-N-T-L, uh, had been hosted on OpenBSD since the early 2000s. I needed to move it out of the data center where it had been running. Uh, the Google Compute Engine looked like a great platform, and it is. It provides high performance, and the price is certainly right. There's a link from the, the price where you want to get details. Yeah. Um, Google Cloud Platform free tier. Uh, this move from my domain to Google was the first step to be a template for putting other sites in the Google Cloud. Google Cloud Platform free tier has several products that are always free up to some usage limits with low cost beyond that. The free tier includes one virtual machine with plenty of horsepower for a website. The F1-Micro instance has a single core Intel Xeon 2.2 gigahertz CPU with 614 megabytes of RAM. That's a interesting <laughs> number for memory, but yeah. Well, they have to save some for the system, right? So if you take a regular amount of memory that's in a server, subtract some percent for the system, and then divide it into small pieces and give it out to a bunch right, of Right, that's the, yeah, that's the usable RAM for, for the actual computing for the user. Okay, so yeah, it's a shared core machine. You get 20% of a virtual CPU all the time, with bursts up to 100%. So you're not alone on the uh, underlying metal. Uh, after the first one, each additional F1 micro instance costs just $3.88 per month. US dollar, that is. Um, the free tier F1 micro VM comes with 30 gigabytes of persistent disk storage based on locally attached solid-state drives. Uh, additional storage is just 0 0.04 cents US dollar uh, per... Or, US dollar cents. Yeah, it's four cents, yeah. not zero point zero four. <laughs> that would be there's that, a big difference. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's yeah, that's Tarsnap territory. Um, yeah, so that's four cents per gigabyte per month. Although thirty gigabytes was more than enough for that purpose here. Okay, you get the static external IP address. IPv6 is only available when you are also using load balancers, and the ingress traffic is unlimited. And the first gigabyte egress traffic per month is free. Beyond that, first gigabyte of outbound traffic, the pricing is kind of complicated, but quite cheap. So that first three gigabyte is to all destinations other than Australia and China, other than Hong Kong. Uh, it's 12 cents uh, per gigabyte to most of the world after that first gigabyte. And all traffic to Australia is 19 cents per gigabyte. Traffic to China other than Hong Kong is 23 gigabytes. You could run multiple websites on the one hosts or the one VM, then you could uh, build the individual sites for egress traffic based on data collected in the web server logs. And then they talk about how you reserve a v, an, I, not a VM, an IP address. Of course, that should also be uh, assigned to your VM. And they show a little screenshot how you do that in their web over, uh, in their website. Then they set up a DNS, of course, because everyone needs to have a name, even your VM. 
And that's of course for the uh, here registered uh, domain here. You set up the A and C name records, then the A record for at, meaning the domain itself, defines the IPv4 address they write. And it continues with deploying the VM. So this is basically issuing... Just using the, the gcloud command line tool to get a list of the freebsd.org uh, images. And then you can use um, the gcloud compute command to create a new instance based on one of those versions, whatever version you want to use. And then it'll be up and running. Mm -hmm. Yep. SSH into that is also shown and setting up keys, of it course. Shows Basically, add a firewall rule to allow SSH in. Yep. And then you are on your way. Cool. That's a nice way of using FreeBSD on Google Compute Engine. Yep. Okay. And it's time for the news roundup this week. We have the namesake for this episode, the firewall band sharing across machines. Yeah, uh, so the question is, how can you block one IP simultaneously on multiple machines? Uh, say, as described in a previous post of my infrastructure from 2019, my machines are located in three different sites, and those are, sites are loosely coupled. Nevertheless, I wanted to set things up so that if an IP address is acting maliciously towards one of my machines, all of my machines will block that IP at once uh, so that the Mini won't get to try it on any of my other machines. This isn't exactly new with computers or even... Uh, in nature, that's why I named this Akia. Akechia? Or Akakia? Akechia? Uh, something <laughs> like that. Uh, one of multiple ways to achieve this goal would be to use BGP and communities. The problem with this approach is that I wanted all exchanges between my machines to be encrypted. I could have met this requirement with a VPN or something, but I would have had to set up too many sessions for my taste, uh, and I wanted to develop a REST API to do this on its own instead. So I wanted some boring technology, so I used Flask, which is a Python library, and Postgres. Uh, this worked quite well, and I enjoyed writing it. Uh, I also write, uh, I wrote a client for it in Python. The client reads the locally blocked IP addresses, sends them to the API, then fetches the complete block list from the API and feeds that into PF, the firewall. At the beginning, my code was uh, very unoptimized. I definitely didn't want to run the polling too frequently, so I set it to every five minutes. The real problem was that a lot of, can happen in five minutes, and I thought I could get closer to real time by using PubSub. So they went to play with that. Uh, it says, I usually tried to use a, a light message queue, like MQTT, However, I was only left with an itch to scratch, which couldn't uh, because I couldn't get the examples to work. So while reviewing some other work, I worked to update our Redis port for the 6.x branch. I noticed they had finally added TLS support. Well, that was great. I already had a Redis instance running, and I liked the software. So I got a proof of concept working quite easily, again in Python. I made it evolve into a single, uh, simple daemon. It worked well, and it was uh, correctly connected to Redis. The problem is that I often need to reboot my infrastructure to upgrade it, and that daemon didn't always detect it had lost the connection to the Redis server. To make the problem worse, I couldn't check at any given time whether the script was correctly connected to the Redis server. Uh, Redis can tell you how many listeners a channel has, but doesn't actually reflect uh, reality. The only currently connected clients, uh, or sorry, only currently connected clients receive the PubSub messages. So if you're offline at the time, you don't get the message. Mm, yeah. So I was using PubSub as a light and near real-time system, 
and but using the REST API to be confident that no server was missing any data. So using the PubSub just to distribute the data until the next polling period, where you would resync from the more authoritative API. Uh, so then or initially what motivated me the most was the want to have a web status page so I could check whether it was connected to Redis uh, with an HTTP client and so on. Doing that in Python would not have been that simple. Based on what I heard about Golang, I thought it would be more accessible. Uh, so indeed, I painlessly achieved what I wanted. The new daemon is uh, much more reliable. I haven't been able to get it to disconnect uh, when it thinks it's connected. And it has a status HTTP endpoint that I can pull. So how do they use it? I recently published uh, on GitHub one repo for the API and the client and another for the PubSub daemon. Each has its own readme file, uh, but as a whole, I run the Flask API under Docker because I don't, I didn't find a way I'd like to do it on OpenBSD. While Redis uses an internal PKI system for the API, I just use Let's Encrypt. For Redis PKI, I used a shell wrapper called Shell PKI. And then they're just using PF tables to basically load the list of hosts to block. Uh, so currently they use a table per protocol. So there's a brute force web, brute force SSH, and so on. It allows me to identify why the IP was banned easily as well. I have on each machine two cron jobs, uh, one that runs every five minutes that uh, pulls from the API, and then one that runs every minute that does the PubSub side. Okay. Uh, they say PubSub is lighter uh, than doing the rest dance, so it runs every minute. It's not perfect, but there is no way to get a notification from PF when an IP address is banned, even using OpenBGPD, as far as they could tell. You can uh, automatically fill a PF table from a community, but you can't get it to automatically update a community based on a PF table. So yeah, whatever likely whatever process is adding to the PF table would have to be the thing that would notify you. I wonder if on FreeBSD with PF, if you could use something like DevD to actually raise an event every time something was added to a table. Yeah, like a warning system or like a notification. Well, it's just a notification. Um, It'd be weird because like in the case where you do a reload, where you reload the whole table, you probably wouldn't want to raise an event for every entry in the table because that wouldn't scale very well. Uh, but maybe you'd have a separate event just saying the whole table's been reloaded. Uh, anyway, with these different bricks, any IP that gets blocked by one of my machines will automatically get blocked by my other machines uh, within a, a short amount of time. Oh, excellent. So I uh, clicked on the uh, Nature article that's, that's linked there, and it tells the... You know, the Acacia's alarm system, that's why this is named this way. So apparently the trees in, uh, uh, they have a kind of an alarm signal. So when they, so one tree detects that there's an antelope browsing at the leaves, then this warns the other trees and the, then the other trees will emit ethylene into the air, uh, which can travel up to 50 yards. Wow. And that warns um, the other trees. And then those trees will kind of start producing leaf tannin, which is kind of lethal to those so they will basically avoid the trees then so interesting stuff yeah uh okay going back to the show uh, we have oh this is an interesting one uh we have openvpn as a default gateway on openbsd uh, over at data swamp um they write that if you plan to use an openvpn tunnel to reach your default gateway which would make the ton interface in the egress group and use ton a ton zero and your pfconf, which is pfconf, which is loaded uh, before OpenVPN starts. Here are the few tips I use to solve the problem. So first, you remove your current default gateway. Uh, we don't want a default gateway on the system. You need to know the remote address of the VPN server. And if you have a etc my gate file, remove that. The etc hostname.if file, 
uh, with IF being your interface name, like EM0, for example, should look like the following. So there's the IP address, then, you, then there's up, and then an exclamation mark route at host ABCD to e, yeah, 129.168.1.254 in this example. Yeah, so specifically, once you remove the default gateway, the problem will be you won't be able to reach the VPN server unless it's in your broadcast domain, the same subnet as you. Um, so likely what you need to do is add a route specifically for your VPN endpoint. So like, you know, I want my default gateway, all my traffic to go out the VPN, but obviously I need a more specific rule saying to get to the VPN, you need to use my regular router over here. Mm. It's over there now. Okay, then you create the TAN0 interface at boot. So to do that, you create an etc hostname.tan0 file with only up as content, uh, which will then create a TAN0 at boot and make it available to pfconf, and you prevent it from loading the configuration. You may think one could use egress instead of the interface name, but this is not allowed in QE. Ah, okay. So, and then don't let OpenVPN manage the route. Don't use redirect-gateway Def default bypass dash DHCP from the open VPN configuration. This will create a route which is not default. And so TAN0 interface won't be in the egress group, which is not something we want. And instead, you add those two lines in your configuration file to execute a script once the tunnel is established in which we will make the default route. So the lines are script dash security two, and then up etc slash open VPN slash script up dot sh, which is your shell script to up that. And in exactly that script, you have um, basically the line to add that default route. Cool, that's that's pretty neat. Yeah, so when the OpenVPN connection comes up, it'll run the script, and the script adds a default gateway of um, basically the endpoint on the other end of the VPN. So now all your traffic, except for traffic going to the VPN, will go to the host on the other side of the VPN, which will then do NAT or whatever and take you out to the internet. Uh -huh. um, so those steps would be almost exactly the same on uh, FreeBSD, except for instead of using the etc slash hostname dot ton zero or whatever, it would just be an rc.conf with ifconfig underscore the interface name. Uh, to create the ton zero, you would just add ton zero to the variable cloned underscore interfaces, and that will create a ton zero or ton one or whatever space separated list of interfaces you put in there uh, at boot. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's really a nice use of that. Because you would mm -hmm. always think, ah, just just add to the to get to the networking, I need the default gateway, and I'm out in my way. But having a VPN gateway, that's that's cool. Yeah, especially if you want, hey, I want almost everything to go through the VPN, but obviously the VPN needs to not go through the VPN because <laughs> you can't route packets to the VPN if you don't have a route to the VPN. Yeah. Um, but you might also have one or two other hosts where you specifically don't want that traffic to go through the VPN for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so everything is privately and secure, and you don't have to worry about people listening in on that traffic even. Okay, then we have, ah, yes, sorting out what the single Unix specification is from Chris Seibenman on the blog. Yeah, uh, so like many of us, it seems he was slightly confused about what exactly the single Unix specification is and what is included and not included in that. So he says, I've linked to the single Unix specification any number of times for various versions of it. When I first linked to it, it was uh, issue six back in 2006. It's now up to the 2018 edition, but I've never been quite clear what it covers and what it doesn't cover and how it relates to POSIX and similar things like that. After yesterday's post, well, I guess it wasn't yesterday, but uh, a previous post about the 
diff command and it's the way it handles arguments, it got me looking at that single Unix specification site again, and I decided to try to sort out what it is once and for all. My primary resource for this was the Wikipedia page because the uh, SUS FAQ claims to have been updated recently, but is clearly out of date in many important respects. Also useful is the page of the Austin Commons Standard Revision Group, uh, which I think is who maintains POSIX or something. Um, the Wikipedia page has a helpful rundown of the history of the single Unix specification and some related items to that. As stated by various places, the core of the single Unix specification is POSIX, which is uh, formally an IEEE standard and also an international ISO slash IEC standard. So IEEE 1003 and ISO 9945. POSIX incorporates by reference some vintage vintages of ANSI C, which is somewhat like C99, I think, since the Unix APIs it specifies are specified in C. The POSIX standard covers both the C library APIs, commands that are uh, executed through the shell, which is also specified in POSIX, and I believe things like some file paths. As far as I can tell, the only other standard is the single Unix specification is something called curses, which is not part of Unix or uh, POSIX. He also says, see this other Wikipedia page uh, on Unix standards and the open groups FAQ as well. But anyway, this implies that if a Unix command or a non-curses API is in the single Unix specification, it's also in POSIX. That matches what I've seen in the online single Unix specification that I keep linking to bits of. I've only ever noticed it talking about POSIX or I, uh, IEEE 1003.1 uh, for most purposes, then I just talk about POSIX or single unit specification interchangeably, which is somewhat different than how I used to think it was. I originally thought that the single unit specification was a superset of POSIX that added significant extra commands and requirements that were not in POSIX, but that appears not to be the case. Uh, so he says, sidebar on this is where my misunderstanding of what the single unit specification was came from. How I thought the story went was that POSIX was a relatively minimal standard for Unix that did not go far enough in practice for various political reasons. This caused actual Unix vendors to get together and agree on an additional layer of things on top of POSIX that made up this Unix in practice, creating this single Unix specification. Systems that were in no way Unix derived could be POSIX compliant if they tried, and so could candidates for US government contracts that required POSIX, for the origins of POSIX and so on, but they could not be Unix, which was something that was defined by the single Unix specification. But obviously this is not actually the case, and at least not the case in modern versions of the single Unix specification. This goes to show me once again, the power of folklore, especially since I fell for it. And I definitely see the point. Like there are lots of things that are POSIX compliant. Like I think technically Windows is more POSIX compliant than FreeBSD is and so on. <laughs> so I don't know, it seems like what we need is a, a new single Unix specification that actually defines more Unixy stuff. Yeah, that uh, covers all that. Huh. It's interesting. I mean, back in the days when that was written or defined, there was less Unix systems out there. And maybe nowadays, it's difficult to define as such a standard, because not everyone implements that standard. And again, the more standards you have, the more people who are out there don't implement it and add another one to it. Yeah. Well, in this case, there's no standard. So it's not that there would be a competing standard. But yes, getting anybody else to buy into it would be difficult. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then we have Bye Bye Apple. And you're thinking, why? Wait, wait, what? Uh, this is a blog post uh, that we found is interesting because it has a switching story and starts like the following. Bye Bye Apple. 
The days of Apple products are behind me. I had been developing on a MacBook for over 12 years, but now I've switched to an ever-trending setup, OpenBSD on a ThinkPad. The new platform is a winner. Everything is clean, quick, and configurable. When I PS UAXWW, I'm hogging gigs of RAM just to have things up and running. There's no black magic that derails me at every turn. In short, my sanity has been long restored. So what I miss? Nothing is better than a fast web browser. In Mac, this OS within the OS was a mean beast. It certainly ran fast, but the Chromium package for OpenBSD isn't all that bad. That magnet power interface was a real win with the Apple laptops. I miss that, in addition to speakers that could be maxed out to their potential. On the other hand, there's a healthy list of things I will forever be glad to never have to deal with again. Xcode, the omnipresent dock, never used it once. The omnipresent finder, uh, .ds underscore store files. Oh yes, those. Uh, Blackmagic in the terminal.app, notifications and its omnipresent menu hamburger icon, the app store and the startup court. Well, that can be changed. That There are ways to either silence that or, yeah exchange it with a different one. But yeah, uh, I've noticed that with every passing year, the peripheral interface ports are dwindling. On an older MacBook, I still had some options, SD card reader, USB 2, etc. But lately, it's out of control. On this middle-of-the-road ThinkPad, I have an SD card reader, HDMI, scats of USB ports, RJ45. I'm never going to need a dongle or say the word dongle ever again now that Apple is out of my life. Home again. Well, you say that, but <laughs> some of the newer ThinkPads need a dongle for Ethernet. Uh, and have, you know, they do have more ports, but they've decided to make like the X1 is so thin it does it's not tall enough for an RJ45 port. Mm. And I think one of, one of the older X1s had like a little thing that folded down. And I was like, that's just gonna break. Uh, but the newer ones is like, yeah, you need a dongle. Yeah. Uh, but it's not a USB-C dongle. It's like a custom dongle, which is worse. Yeah. And I mean, it's always a trade-off between portability and the available ports and. Other people just get an external USB hub and be done with that. Right. Well, I guess there are advantages to the custom dongle I think that had because it meant you were still using a real Ethernet driver that was connected on like PCIe or whatever. Uh, and it was just the dongle was just the port because there wasn't room on the laptop. So I can see why that's better than USB-C. But at the same time, the uh, replaceable thing seems slightly less terrible. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I still have my X270, which has a real Ethernet port. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to go with all the latest models, but the ThinkPads last for a while, so you don't have to yes, jump on well, the Yes, well, I want all the latest stuff. I just don't want them to keep making it thinner to the point where it's not a useful <laughs> machine anymore. <laughs> oh, it, f it fell through a crack and I cannot find it anymore. It's so small. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, let's finish this one. Uh, home again uh, is the uh, headline here. Uh, my memory is pretty good, and I recall when I got my first Mac product, it was because there was no other op decent option for having a development laptop, but one where Microsoft Windows wasn't a requirement. Many times I tried duct taping a Linux install on, on my, pre my various Macs, but things were just not there. There was always an issue with this or that, and it was truly painful. I think I lost the scent of the trail. OpenBSD works so well, I wonder how many years I could have been using this great operating system outside of just the server world. Of course, this setup isn't for all. If you're green on the Unix front or you can't read a manual, you'd be foolish to do it. For the others, it certainly is a viable solution, to say the least. I can honestly predict that I can see myself using this setup for 25 more years. It's like coming home to a quiet, orderly house. 
Open your heart to OpenBSD on ThinkPad at your first opportunity. This really le reads like a love story. <laughs> okay, yeah, whatever makes you happy, use what works, what works for you and makes you productive. And it's never too late to switch. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, online backups for the truly paranoid. So Tarsnap is a tool designed to let you back up your machine, especially your important files, and specifically designed to be able to be used on the road. Um, because what Tarsnap does is takes the files on your computer, then uh, segments and deduplicates them to get the amount of data you need to back up down as small as possible and avoid backing up any data you've already backed up before, then compresses that to make it even smaller, and then encrypts it and signs it so that no one else can read it. And when you get it back, you can verify it hasn't been tampered with before you, you know, use that backup and then uploads what left uh, to the cloud. This has the advantage of you know, using less bandwidth, meaning you can do your backups frequently without having to use a lot of bandwidth because the segmentation and deduplication in Tarsnap will find the smallest possible block of difference in the file uh, in order to back up only the part that changed rather than just saying, oh, that whole document changed, I'll re-upload the whole thing. It breaks it into smaller chunks and figures out what chunk changed and sends only that. And then the compression. Uh, the thing that makes the biggest difference here as well is that the storage and bandwidth that you get charged for are the final version, which is after the segmentation and duplication, after the compression, and then the encryption. Because what you're sending to them is encrypted, they never know what the original size is. Tarsnap only knows here's an encrypted blob and it's this big. And so you only pay for the actually compressed price. Whereas a lot of other backup companies will back up your data, but they want to charge you for the original size of the files and keep all the gains from the compression as their profit margin. But at Tarsnap, you they only ever see the encrypted data. And so they can only charge you for that. And that's how it's that much cheaper. So anyway, head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD now, sign up. It's page to go so you can put in some money, start doing your backups, and you're good to go. You just need to take very careful care of your encryption key because that's the only way to restore a backup is to have that key. So you need to safe that somewhere. Uh, and they have a whole system for printing it out and laminating it or whatever and being able to read it back in to make it that much easier to do. Yep. Unless you're super paranoid. Yeah, as you can expect, when you're relying on your backup, you're already having a bad day. So everything they can do to make that day less stressful, the better. Yeah. Or you don't want anyone uh, have that backup ever again, then you just destroy the key and even the Tarsnet people cannot help you with retrieving that. Exactly. And that's how you know that it's actually secure because they can't help. And if you don't believe us, which you have every reason not to, you can grab the source code for Tarsnap, read it yourself, compile the client yourself and use it and know that the code that's running on your machine is exactly what you think it is. Okay, now it's time for the feedback and questions this week. And uh, everything that you want to always ask us, but haven't yet time or, you know, the courage to, um, that could be part of our uh, Christmas episode, for example. We're doing a special episode, maybe, if we get enough questions. So you can now interview us. Send your questions to feedback at bsdnow.tv or your regular technical questions. That is also very valid to send to us. And then we'll, if you have enough, compile this into an episode that is special. And you can look forward to that. The first one who has sent us a question is uh, Chris this week uh, with a small projects question. Uh, Chris writes... Hi, JT, Alan, and Benedict. 
Thanks for all your work on the show. I found it at the start of lockdown and it has been keeping me sane, stimulating my curiosity and inspired to dive into FreeBSD for the first time. I'm loving what I'm finding. Wish I had discovered it all sooner. Well, see, it's good for something. You definitely should use this time um, to, you know, learn and improve yourself because once lockdown is back up again, <laughs> is over, uh, then you're a much smarter person for it. Uh, I'm really an end user with curiosity, but no computer science experience or formal learning. I'm coming from about 20 years of perpetually falling out with Windows, but not having the knowledge and skills to resolve the typical road bumps you get in Linux. Documentation in FreeBSD has been the best I have ever come across. Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, things are clear. I make progress and I am hooked. I have written the odd bash script using rsync and NFS and toyed with little C++. Oh, see, you get there. Uh, could you recommend three to five small to medium-sized projects that uh, will strike the balance between providing a challenge while not getting a newbie stuck in the weeds, but also covering a small range of basic FreeBSD sysadmin skills you feel a newbie needs to have a functionally meaning, basic working FreeBSD skill set. Thanks again for the podcast. Look forward for the next one. Yeah, little projects like that are definitely the recommended way to, to learn this stuff because actually doing it helps it stick. And, you know, it also can help you contribute by improving the documentation for the next person and so on. I don't have many great ones off the top of my head. So if anybody has some great ones that they've done before or that they would like to do and so on, uh, it'd be great to write those in. You can do something like say set up an own cloud system to be able to basically make a little file server with a web interface where you can sync files and so on and that's kind of covers a little bit of everything right you're setting up a web server you're setting up uh, an application in that web server and configuring some permissions and stuff for it there's also vpns and other stuff you could set up it really depends um there's also some articles on uh, the clara website we've done recently about uh, dummy net and vnets and jails and so on that can give you some ideas on like how to make a traffic shaper or how to make a bunch of other things like that. But yeah, playing with jails, uh, playing with web apps like OwnCloud or, or Nextcloud, I guess, uh, and um, what other things are popular. You know, I would say something like setting up a Plex server, but that's generally install a package in, in a jail or not, <laughs> and then it runs. It's, there's not actually anything to, to learn there. So that's not a great example. So, but it's FreeBSD specific. So I would say try out setting up a jail and then trying to set up a beehive to get the difference between the two. And of course, since you're talking FreeBSD, you will definitely want to use ZFS. That's a lot of learning and good knowledge that you can use in other areas. Just the RAID parts you can pretty much use in any other operating system. But the ZFS specifics are really what's keeping you there. Uh, other things? Uh, well, you know, the typical stuff like a, a web server makes sense there. A mail server is probably not that useful anymore. So if you're interested yeah. in that, yes. But otherwise, you know, that's a lot of weird esoteric stuff to get into if you don't need to. Yeah. Learn about utilities. Learn about top, sysstat, and netcat. All of these things can be carried over mm -hmm. to other operating systems. And this is basically knowledge that you can retain in others and just minimally changes. Um, other things. Other thing, a bit um, about one is uh, if you look at the old BSD uh, admin certification exam, it had a bunch of objectives that you had to be able to do. Uh, so that's a good list of, of things you can try. But right. also just basic user management stuff, like add some other users, uh, set password expiration policies on them, mm -hmm. uh, set quotas, like that. So all these things are good to know and uh, beginner project. And from those, you can always, you know, 
go further ahead a little bit deeper or reuse them in other parts because if you run a mail server, you have to administer users. If you run an outcloud server, you have to administer users. So all of these things will appear in different shapes and sizes in, in other projects. So everything is connected and with similar concepts. Yeah, uh, and it can be just setting up a user that uses SSH keys or setting up a user with a restricted shell so they can only do SFTP and not anything else and uh, all kinds of interesting stuff you could do. PF firewall, all kinds of good things. Go to the uh, FreeBSD handbook, look up some of the major topics that we have in there and then dive into one that interests you. Okay, hopefully that gives you a couple pointers. Thank you for your nice feedback and good luck with your future endeavors. Uh, the next one uh, is Jens with a ZFS question. And Jens writes, hi, at first greetings and thanks for this great podcast. You're welcome. Uh, I've got a ZFS question regarding the removal of boot pool from FreeBSD 11 to 12. At work, I inherited a server running 12.1 release. Wait, where is that work? <laughs> where, where do you inherit servers with FreeBSD on it? Okay, great. I want to know more. Um, so, yeah, this one was updated from 11, and there was trouble during the upgrade process due to the slash boot directory gone missing. I examined it a bit and found that there are two ZFS pools, boot pool and zroot, or zroot. So we get the zpool status outputs here. And so the zroot pool is sitting on encrypted partitions and the boot pool is not. Finally, we come to my question. Is it possible to remove the boot pool without breaking the system? Maybe this would be an opportunity to look into BEADM or BECTL. So let's look at the pool. The first uh, boot pool is a mirror of eight disks, uh, eight disks, four. And the zroot pool is a RAID set two with four disks and the uh, so basically um the boot pool is a small partition of each of his four disks and then his z pool is a large partition uh encrypted of each of those disks oh, that I was the default yeah. in freebsd 10 and i think part of 11 uh because the bootloader didn't support booting from encrypted gelly mm. uh, now it does so yes uh you basically can move the contents of the boot uh, directory back into the main pool which also has the advantage of meaning it's possible to use boot environments um, and then you can basically destroy that boot pool and what you want to do is use the gpark command to uh, delete or at least change the type of the first freebsd-zfs partition the the p3 on each of those disks so that the bootloader doesn't see that as the zfs thing to boot and it will see instead the other one so i helped joseph Monroe solve this problem when he upgraded from 10.3 to 11 uh, and he wrote up some nice instructions on how to manage all this uh so i've put a link in the show notes but basically yeah you have to copy the contents of that slash boot directory from your boot pool to your main pool uh, make sure your boot code's up to date change the type on your current boot pool partitions we just did freebsd-vinum which is an old uh thing from before geom but it means the bootloader won't look there for zfs configure your boot environment uh to to mount properly and then you're good to go mm -hmm. it looks like if i'm reading this correctly joseph also reused the leftover space as extra swap oh yeah that's good use all right yeah so p2 was the boot pool p3 was the swap so he deleted p3 and remade the swap bigger uh to to use up that extra couple of gigs of space that were for the boot pool rather than just having them laying around doing nothing mm. <laughs> yeah put it to good use yeah so uh, good luck with your migration with those instructions you should be uh good to go but yeah um it is possible to convert uh and it's 
pretty safe. And then you should, uh, can also look at using uh, boot environments. Oh, yes, that will, uh, I think, uh, be a very good thing, especially in, in a corporate environment, just having that extra uh, safety net in case something goes wrong. Of course, you need to do them regularly or before the uh, more dangerous operations, but yeah, they're great to have. Okay, then we have Schroyer uh, with .NET on FreeBSD uh, for Jellyfin. And that goes uh, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Great show. I never miss an episode. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Uh, my question is about how to be able to run Jellyfin on FreeBSD. Jellyfin, for those that don't know, I don't, um, is a descendant of MB, and it's basically a full free and open source and slightly more rough, uh, rough around the edges competitor to Plex. Ah, being able to run it on FreeBSD would be so great. Me asking you about this is basically a Hail Mary because it feels almost impossible to do. But if anyone can do it, you can. Oh, wow. Uh, you're placing a lot of trust in us. Um, if you want to know what I've gone through, here you go. I found a recent Reddit thread with the link uh, where someone points out that you should be able to install and run Jellyfin on FreeBSD because there is a .NET 3.0 available for FreeBSD. Then a developer claimed that in Jellyfin, it needs .NET 3.1. In fact, they have a developer who tried to run Jellyfin and they listed the steps uh, on this GitHub. Uh, I tried to install 3.0 the same way as on the GitHub page to see what happens. I got pretty far following those steps and got a couple of errors. Libcore, uh shared object things, okay. Um, so then I installed the gettext package, which brought uh, with it the libintl.so.h. Uh, eight, that is um, the shared object that was reported, uh, which seemed to be the thing to do after some research, which got a new error, failed to initialize core CLR. Uh, I overcame this with adding allow.mlock to the jail.conf, and it worked. Oh, cool. Except it didn't. Hmm. I got the same error at the bottom of the GitHub page. After .NET starts and shows some progress, it ultimately says, oh, big, long Microsoft, uh, no executable found matching command.NET jellyfin. Okay. At first, all I could find was there uh, was supposedly no.NET 3.0 for FreeBSD, but then found another GitHub uh, article or link there on, the, on a wiki entry. Uh, it provides some additional instructions, namely to modify a NuGet config so that it uses some system packages that, he, uh, oh, that you have to download and extract. Since there is no NuGet config for Jellyfin that I saw, I couldn't heed that advice, but I took the rest of the steps and the result was that the same with .NET 3.0, no executable found matching the command. So the guy who created the 3.1 build did a lot of work and he points out that FreeBSD would really benefit from more people from the community using and contributing to the .NET repos. There's a link for building 3.0.NET yourself along with this commentary. Okay. Uh, anyway, I don't know what else to try. Apparently Microsoft can't bootstrap compile.NET for FreeBSD anymore, so it's really tough for the folks working on .NET for FreeBSD because they must reinvent the wheel, but it sounds like they're making progress. Nevertheless, a good enough 3.0 appears to be available, so I'd like to think it worked. Presumably, the Jellyfin developers could work around this, given the resources. Are we at the mercy of the Jellyfin developers to restore FreeBSD functionality? We don't have FreeBSD machines for building and testing, but much less spare time to figure it out. Or might you find gentlemen have some magic up your sleeves? Uh, even if you don't have magic up your sleeves, it'd be, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts if you have any. I don't know anything about .NET. I guess the first question would be to figure out if, you know, where's the actual binary called .NET-Jellyfin? Um, that obviously should come from when you download and install Jellyfin. 
and I'm wondering if it's just named slightly differently and that's confusing something or what the problem is. Yeah. Like I see it saying no executable found matching the command .NET dash jellyfin, but you know, is that is the file there and just not executable or is it not there or what's what's the problem? Yeah. So this is uh porting territory and uh we're both not all too deep into that. Uh, I know that there are people, or there's a couple of ports from uh, C Sharp, or that some C Sharp ports are working, but um, this one is um, very specific. I'm not also sure what the status is about the latest .NET version on FreeBSD. So if 3.1 is actually well enough supported to run uh, .NET applications, or if it's only .NET 3.0, um, this is a bit out of my... Uh, area of expertise maybe a couple of ports people or uh, ports and package people are listening to us who would uh, know a couple of pointers and hints uh, they could certainly send us a follow-up and we would be happy to cover this in a future episode because um, that would be not also helpful to you but other people who want to first port either that specific application or other .NET applications to FreeBSD which ultimately would be good to have for everyone because that basically gives us more um, variety. But so looking no in Jellyfin's actual distribution, they seem to have some platform-specific files like their libe underscore sqlite three and libskya sharp, where they provide you know a Linux x86 version, a Linux x64 version, and like ARM versions and so on which suggests that it has yeah, that there's no FreeBSD directory in here. That might be part of the problem, but yeah. So there, there's actually a file called Jellyfin in there, which appears to be the executable, but there, it, it isn't called .NET dash Jellyfin like it seems to be looking for. So I don't know. So maybe we could get it working with the Linux later, maybe like the other way around using the I Linux version. But yes, uh, one thing you might try is, um, I guess we didn't mention it this week, we'll have to put it in next week's episode. There's is now possible to run uh, Ubuntu in a FreeBSD jail, uh, in which case you might be able to just get all the Linux versions of this to just work. Yeah, the other way Which around. might at least get you closer in the meantime. Yeah, or the, the Ubuntu package knows or does something different that could be used for a FreeBSD port. I know some other people that are interested in net for another application uh in the same vein i think it's called radar with an extra r at the end or something it has similar stuff and so there's definitely some interest in the net stuff but you know FreeBSD would benefit from more people that understand that stuff which as you might expect the overlap of FreeBSD developers and people that do windows.net stuff is not that big so we have to Ideally, get some .NET people that are interested in FreeBSD and teach them the FreeBSD stuff. But at least if you know a lot about .NET, your assistance to somebody that knows a lot about FreeBSD could be quite helpful. Yeah, and the more popular an application is or becomes, the more likely it is that people find a way to make it work on their favorite operating system. Okay, uh, I think that pretty much wraps up this episode. Uh, so thank you for listening, whether you are on Twitch or uh, listening to this live or on the recording later on. Uh, we will look forward to your show notes, feedbacks, anything that you want us to know, to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And then you will just have to wait a little 
seven weeks, no, not seven weeks, seven days, of course, to the next episode of BSD Now.